choir, and thank you, Dr. Long, for that reminder that our God holds us, and he holds all things in the palm of his hand. Well, let's turn together this morning to 1 John chapter 2, where we will continue our study there in verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. This is God's word. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, open our hearts and our minds so that we might behold wonderful things in this your word. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Love, light, and the passing darkness. Well, this is already our fourth week in 1 John, and though it may uh, have felt longer than that to you, or maybe shorter, I don't know, uh, I hope it has been helpful and clear to you. You know, John's teaching is so pastoral, uh, and it's also in so many ways practical that I hope it has been a benefit to you to this point already. Uh, he has made it, in just these few verses into chapter 2, he has made it clear uh, and gone to great lengths to establish us in the great sort of doctrinal truths that his original readers uh, had heard and professed from the beginning, truths about God who is light, uh, and about Jesus Christ, his son, who through his propitiating death and through his continued advocacy on behalf of his children, not only offers eternal life, but is eternal life to all those who believe. Not only that, he, he has also given us truths about the Christian life, about the struggle that we all experience with sin, even now. He's told us about our very real need to routinely, almost constantly come and confess our sins, seeking God's forgiveness. He's also held up to us the great hope we have in knowing that not only is God faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, uh, but that Christ is in fact working in us even now through his Holy Spirit to drive out the darkness of sin. He is enabling us, as we saw last time, to walk in the same way he walked. Christ is truly sanctifying us, even now, so that the Christian life is not just one where we are in a holding pattern until we get to eternity, but it is one of progress. Even if it's slow progress, even if it feels discouraging process, it is a life of progress. Now look, it's important that we really understand what John was trying to say in that last point particularly. And I don't know that I did a great time, a great job of making that clear last time. So I want to pause here just for a moment to sort of flesh out uh, some of those things that we discussed. On the one hand, 
you know, John has made it very clear that sanctification, that, that our walking in the light is as much an act of God's free grace as justification, our being made right with him, our glorification, our eventually going to be in his presence for all of eternity. Without regeneration, without the Holy Spirit creating in us a new heart, without new desires, without new affections, without his enabling and strengthening power, then the reality is uh, any improvement, any obedience on our part would be impossible. So just as a reminder, that's why John and James and Jesus himself can all say that change of uh, changed life, that, that fruit that we produce is proof of our position in Christ. Apart from him, no one can or will walk as he walked. Apart from him, he says in John chapter 15, we can do nothing. And so, if there is any obedience in any of us today towards God, even if it's just the desire to run to him and cry out like the publican, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If, if we have any desire to do good at all, then there is reason to take heart, to have assurance that Christ and his grace is truly at work in you. Apart from him, that would not be possible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we have to establish the, the truth that this is God's work in us. It's his grace working in us. On the other hand, however, having fully acknowledged that absolute necessity, we must also acknowledge that sanctification is a process that we are active in. And it is a process that there is now real potential for success in. In other words, obedience is truly now an option for those who are resting in Christ. Obedience is now truly an option in the Christian life. Many of you know uh, that I spent about, well, now 17 weeks, but the, the last 16 or so weeks uh, in the first of the Hebrew language classes that I have to take. Uh, and I will tell you, before I went into that class, if you had given me a, a Hebrew text, I could not have made heads or tails. I wouldn't have known anything at all, at all, Okay. But over the course of 16 weeks, my professor has taught me the, the noun system. He's taught me the verb system, about half of the verb system. Uh, he has taught me vocabulary words so that now, if you put some Hebrew in front of me, I can at least make heads or tails of it. I'm not going to guarantee you anything, but I can at least read a, a little bit of it. Now, I've got 16 more weeks, so hopefully after those 16 weeks, I'll be smooth sailing. But um, my point is, is could I have read Hebrew by myself? No. I, I would not have been able to make any heads or tails of it whatsoever. Is now my reading of Hebrew perfect? It is not. But is it possible for me to at least read the words on the page? Yes. Well, friends, in a much greater way, that's true of the Christian life. It's greater because it's not just merely an external teacher that we have, but we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the law written on our hearts. And so is our obedience 
perfect? No. It, it, can I do it completely by myself? No. But is obedience possible? The answer is yes. It is possible in Him. Sin no longer has the upper hand on us. We are no longer enslaved to it. If you are in Christ, He has set you free from sin's power. He has broken its hold on your life. And now He is calling you and enabling you to put sin to death and to live to righteousness. Think about it. When Christ redeemed people in His earthly ministry, what did He say to them? Your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Now my question to you is when he said, go and sin no more, was he just joking about that? Did, did, he, say, did he say that knowing full well that the people he sent out could not do that? I don't think so. He knew the power that was in, at work in them. His power that was at work in them. And so he meant it when he said, go and sin no more. Just like John means it when he says there in verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In Christ, friends, my point this morning, in Christ, obedience is possible. Actually, we could go a step further and say it is a necessary result of knowing and loving Him. Remember last time, that propitiation, Christ as our advocate. How do we respond to so great a salvation? Well, Hebrews 2 says we don't neglect it. Rather, we, according to Paul in Romans 12, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless before him, right? Or you think about Romans 6, and he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He goes on to say, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, did you get that last part? We like it when he says grace, but his point there is that grace is at work in you so that you might not sin, right? Grace is what is working in you to, to work out obedience in your life. It is enabling you to live as Christ has called you to live, to walk as he has walked. Now, I don't know if that sufficiently clear things up, or if that just sufficiently stirred up the waters, but um, I'm going to leave it there because we've got to get to our passage today. But friends, my, my point is I think that we often, as people who talk about grace so much, and we should because it is all of grace, but we talk about grace, and sometimes we talk about grace at expense of obedience, and it shouldn't be that way. Paul does not speak that way. Jesus does not speak that way. Grace is working in us so that we might be obedient. Now, with that in mind, we move to our passage today where having given us 
this moral test in the, the passage preceding, the moral test of uh, if you know God, then you will keep his commandments, he now moves on to a specific commandment. The, the, the specific commandment that he has in mind when he says those things that should be characteristic of the Christian life. And the question for us as we approach this passage is going to be threefold. We want to ask, what is the commandment specifically that John has in mind? Why is that commandment so important for us to keep? And what does keeping that commandment actually entail? So, defining the commandment, the importance of the commandment, and keeping the commandment. Let's look at it together. First, defining the commandment. Now, if you read and if you were listening while we read through that passage, you wouldn't think that defining what commandment John had in mind would be all that difficult. After all, in the first two verses, he uses the word commandment four different times, and so clearly this is at the heart of what he is trying to say to us. But as you read through there, you'll notice that he never explicitly says, here is the commandment. This is not like uh, Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 where the law is laid out for us. You shall not do this. You shall not do this. No, he leaves it up to his readers to sort of deduce or assume the commandment that he has in mind. So, the question is, which one is it? Well, I think if we use our Sherlock Holmes abilities, if we put our hat on, uh, verse 10 probably gives us enough to make a pretty strong conclusion. Uh, We read there, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It seems that that John has in mind here the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, for, for Christians to love one another. Now, I realize that that was not all that difficult, that that didn't take a lot of mental gymnastics, but I do want you to recognize what John says about that commandment particularly, okay? So notice, it's a commandment that is old and new. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, right? That seems to be two contradictory things. Something can't be old and new at the same time, it would seem to us. So, let's ask, how is this commandment to love one another old? Well, obviously, uh, there's a a sense where the commandment can go all the way back to creation itself, right? It certainly can be traced back to the Pentateuch, to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, where we read in the law to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus sums up the whole second half of the moral law in Matthew 22 with that same command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then if you flip over to John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, Uh, He's going to use the the story of Cain and Abel as an example of rejecting that command. And so my point to you is that all the way back to Cain and Abel, and really if we believe that Adam had the moral law written on his heart, then we could say all the way to creation itself, this law to love your neighbor has been in existence, to love others. So it's old in that sense, that it goes all the way back. But notice that it's also old to John's readers in the sense that it was, in verse 7b, the word that they had heard from the very start of their Christian lives, from their Christian walks. In other words, this commandment was a central part of the apostolic message. It was a central part of, of, 
the message that they had heard when they became Christians. And that makes sense because it was central to Jesus' message as well, right? If you look on top of your bulletin there, in John chapter 13, we're going to come back to this verse a lot, so keep your bulletin out and about. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. John chapter 15, he says the same thing. Uh, And then, of course, we've already referenced that passage in Matthew chapter 22. So this idea of loving one another, it was so ingrained in them that John could assume that they would know exactly what it was he was talking about without having to, to restate it word for word to them. It's old truth. It's time-tested truth. And it's foundational truth to their faith. Now, it's worth pointing out, and look, this is a point of application, so if you've gone to sleep, listen to me here. It's worth pointing out that, that this is probably a direct shot that John is taking to those uh, false teachers that, that have come on the scene to these people, right? They, they were Gnostics most likely, and so they would have claimed to have had a new, a new revelation, a, a new wisdom that they are trying to impart to these Christians. And they would have said to them, without this wisdom, you cannot truly be Christian. And so they would have scoffed at the old. They certainly would have scoffed at the apostolic message. At minimum, they would have said, you have to add this truth to it. But John says no. He roots them in what is old. He roots them in what they had from the beginning. In the old, old story that is tried and is true and is given by God. Now, I recognize that I'm talking to a bunch of Reformed Presbyterians, and so I don't really have to encourage you to remember what's old or to like the things from the past. But you know that we live in a world, particularly for our younger folks, uh, where the things that are old are constantly being challenged, right? Uh, Where people are always wanting to change what Scripture says. They're wanting to add to what the Bible says, add doctrine to what the church has clung to for over 2,000 years. And so this is a, a helpful reminder to us that what we find in Scripture What we learned from the beginning, it needs no supplement. It needs no adding to. It is sufficient to save, and it is sufficient to give us all we need for faith and for practice. So don't waver from the old story, is John's message. Don't waver from what is tried and tested and true. The commandment is old. But then John also says that the commandment is new. We've established that that the commandment is not new in his existence. So what does John mean when he says that it's new? We'll look at the second part of verse 8 there. I think that helps clear it up for us. He says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. And here it is, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, the, the newness of this commandment is found in its expression. Before, it had been expressed through the law. It had been expressed in the lives of God's people. We know that the law, it was just a shadow of things to come, right? The the law was just, while it was good and it was from God, 
It, it was not the fullness. It was a type, a sketch of what was to come. And we know that God's people in the Old Testament, just as they are in the New Testament, uh, they were sinful people, right? And they didn't always love their neighbor as themselves. They didn't always do this love commandment very well. But now, brotherly love has been fully expressed and fully realized, John says, in Him. It is in Christ, the true light, that we see the extent and the fullness of true love. It is His love expressed as He washes the the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13. It is His love expressed in the Garden of Gethsemane as He sweats great drops of blood. It is His love expressed most clearly on the cross as He takes the wrath that our sins deserve. As He is pierced, for our transgressions. And of course it is his love that is Paul expresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a love that is patient and kind. It's a love that, that doesn't see or that doesn't um, seek its own. To sum it up, if you want to know what love looks like, then John says all you have to do is look to Jesus. He is the model of love. He is the new expression of what the commandment is all about. Jesus himself says as much in John chapter 13 when he calls his disciples to love one another. He says to do it how? As I have loved you. So not only is it newly expressed in him, however, But notice also that through him it is also newly expressed in you, or in believers. No longer is the commandment merely external, but now it has been written on the hearts of all who believe. He, through the outpouring of his love into our hearts, and through uh, the outworking of his love in our lives, is driving away darkness. He's causing the darkness to pass away. And so, the commandment is to love one another. It's an old commandment, but it's also a new commandment in its expression. We see that the commandment defines. Secondly, I want you to notice in this passage the importance of the commandment. And it's seen there in what John says about those who keep it, and also in what John says about those who fail to keep it. So, verses 9 and 11, John describes for us uh, in very modern terms, the hater. Okay? He, he describes for us the one who hates his brother, the person who fails to keep the commandment. And notice, this is a person who professes to be in the light. It is one who says with his mouth, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of God. But notice his actions. They, they tell a completely different story. He is failing that, that moral test that John gave us in, in verses 1 through 6. He is not doing or walking as Christ has walked. His profession is a false profession. He, he is in darkness. And notice the progression of verse 11 there. Whoever hates his brother, he is in darkness. He abides in it. He walks in darkness, and he is lost. His eyes are blinded so that he cannot see 
where he is going. It's almost the complete opposite of Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who, who sits and walks and bides in the law of God, right? Well, not this man. It is completely the opposite. So we have the, the man who hates, but on the other hand, the man who loves his brother. He doesn't have to say anything in verse 10. Notice he makes no profession. It is his action. It is his love that he shows to others that is the light in him. And because he is in the light, there is no cause for stumbling. His path, his steps are sure, and they are clear. Now, if what we saw last week was the the moral test of how we know of our knowledge of God, then we might call this the, the social test of our knowledge of God. The way we treat others particularly other believers, John says is a direct indication of where we stand with God. Actually, it's not just John that says this, it's also Jesus who says this. Again, one last time, John chapter 13. By this, the way you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. People will know that we belong to him. Not by the words of our mouth, though that's important. Not by the professions that we make. They will know by the way that we love God's people. Friends, in our world today, in our current political climate, how important is it that people see the love of Christ in believers? You know, we try all these various means to, to build the church and to spread the gospel, but Paul says if we do it without love, then we are simply uh, noisy gongs. We, we are sounding, clanging cymbals. How much more effective would our witness be in the world? How much, more, how much trouble and darkness would we avoid if we simply loved as Christ calls us to love? Let me ask you, what would your friends, what would your co-workers, what would your family, what would your parents, what would they say about you? Is it love that they see in you? Not simply in your words, but in your actions. Could they say, yes, this person, he or she, is a follower of Christ based off the way that you love, love other people. Again, Jesus says, this is the way that people will know us. So the importance of the commandment. Well, we're about out of time, um, and there's still one last point to go. But it is a point that's going to come up again in our study of 1 John. And so what I want to do here on this last point is not get into all of the depths of it. I just want to hit the high points very quickly. So thirdly, I want you to notice living the commandment. What does it mean to love your brother? Clearly, the the commandment to love one another is essential, but the question for all of us, especially in our world, is what does it mean to really biblically love another person? Is it, as the world seems to think, really a love that's just me-centered? I love other people so that they will love me, or I love other people that love me. Is Is that what real love looks like? Is it allowing people to do or to be or to say or to think whatever in the world they want to think? You just do you, and that's real love. Is it a blind love, as we so often like to say, love is blind? Is it a timid love 
that Jesus is calling us to. Well, friends, if it is Christ's love that we are to display, then the answer to all of those questions is no. Certainly, his love was non-discriminatory. He loved all kinds of people, the worst kinds of people. Harlots, tax collectors, lepers, Roman centurion, people that nobody else really liked or loved, he loved. Certainly his love was selfless. Laying down his life for a friend, for other people. Certainly his love was persistent. It did not give up. It kept going till the end. It keeps going even now. But friends, his love was also not blind. And it was not dismissive. And it was not timid. Jesus' love didn't allow people to just be what they wanted to be or do what they wanted to do. No, He loved them too much to allow them to do what they wanted to do. His love demanded, and it still demands, change for the person's good, for the one who is being loved. It demands change for their good. His love was full of grace and kindness, yes, but it was no pushover. And as we will see in the weeks to come, that's the kind of love that we as Christians are called to display. And let's, let's call it like it is right now. This is not an easy love. It's not easy to love people this way. We have these conversations within the session all the time. This is the kind of love as session members we are to display. And part of that means church discipline. Part of that means loving people and telling them they need to change. Love is not simply you do you. Because doing you is what's got us in the mess to begin with. Oh, love points us to Jesus constantly over and over and over again and it calls us to live as he lived. It's the love of Christ we have received expressed to all those around us. And so our prayer as we conclude is that God would give us a genuine love particularly for his people but for all people all that we come into contact with And that he would continue to build us up in his love so that we might better love the world. Let's pray together. Father God.